holy, holy, holy.
hymnal. We have the Apostles' Creed. Let's recite together our faith and what we believe. I believe in God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From this he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please rise and sing the glory of God. Of which it 
body in which he suffered, with the essential properties thereof, but without mortality and other common infirmities belonging to his life. Really united to his soul, he rose again from the dead the third day by his own power, whereby he declared himself to be the Son of God, to have satisfied divine justice, to have anguished death, and him that had power on it, and to the Lord of the wicked and the dead, all which he did as a public person, the head of his church, for their justification, quickening in grace, support against enemies, and to assure them of their resurrection from the dead at the last day. Good morning, people of God. Now, just to say this, you know, if you if you haven't been to a church like this before, one that has a liturgy, there are certain things that happen in the service that might be unusual to you. One of them might be the thing that comes up next. Uh, sometimes when people are hearing the Apostles' Creed or they haven't done it for a long time, I remember the first time that I ever recited it in a church, uh, some of the words in there were unfamiliar to me, or some were a little too familiar to me, like the word Catholic. And you have to remember that this word has been used in the church for 2,000 years. It doesn't mean Roman Catholic, and Presbyterians are just not highly likely to give over that word to the Roman Catholics. You know, there are friends and such, but it means the universal church, all true believers in Jesus Christ at all times and in all places. Even those that are before us in heaven are part of the same church with us now. So that might be a little unusual to you to confess your faith as one people together. Another thing is a time of confession. Now, this isn't a time where we go into a black box or something and confess our sins to another human being who can't really do anything about them. This is a time for us to unburden our consciences before God and to confess to him personally and privately our personal and private sins. Right after that, we'll have a time of confession where we corporately, as a people of God, will admit and confess our sin. So at this time, we'll have a time of silence for you to confess to the Lord your God your personal sins. Now also by way of corporate confession, Christians, do you believe that you have sinned every day in thought, word, and deed? We do. And do you believe that you have no hope but in the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ alone? We do. And I simply declare to you what the scriptures declare, that if you have rested on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, denying any of your own, that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, your sins are forgiven, and you are restored to a right relationship with your God. Amen. 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 Lord God, our Father, at this time we want to bring before you our prayers, the particular petitions of this people of God, of this gathered people that we call a church. We pray, Lord God, especially for those that are suffering from serious illness, we want to remember Peggy Ford and Helen McBride, Mike Perkins, 
Now Michael Fredman is coming through surgery. Lord God, we just pray that you would restore him completely and heal his body. We want to remember in prayer Eddie and Eve Settles and Calvin and Deborah Beisner. We pray that, Lord God, just for your continual healing and well-being. For those of our number that are in specialized homes or have specialized care or in retirement, Lord, we know that they've been separated from your people for a long time because of the virus. And so we just pray that you would continually be with them and give them the strong knowledge of your presence and power in their lives. As the restrictions are starting to be relieved, Lord God, we just pray that you would restore them to us, Lord God, so that we can share in the joy of them being with us and us being with them. We also want to pray, Lord God, for, for any other needs that are unspoken here or that wouldn't be proclaimed in your house, Lord God, but that people know. We want to pray for those that are struggling with different maladies and sicknesses and harms, Lord God, just that you would restore our bodies and bring about your healing. And we pray for this, Lord God, knowing that you are the only true and great physician and that even our doctors and nurses and medications are only an administration by your hand. That ultimately you are the one that preserves and raises our bodies. We also want to pray, Lord God, for kings and presidents and those in positions of power and authority, that they would guide according to your royal law so that we might have true and real justice in the land. We also pray, Lord God, for your church here and around the world, that you might grant peace to those in persecuted places, and that you might grant, Lord God, by the power of your spirit, that when your gospel is preached, that it might bring about salvation in the hearts of the hearers. We pray all of these things, praying the prayer that your son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our next song is in your order of service. In Christ alone. Please rise.
So now is the time for offering and um, tithing. Um, and we have a little box in the back, so if you'd like to, to give that um, a try. We don't have a plate due to COVID. Um, at any rate, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you, and we know that all things come from you. Our knowledge, uh, our material wealth, everything comes from you. And we thank you for it. Lord, uh, please accept the, the, uh, the offering that we give today and that it may grow your church uh, here and around the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Extend your kingdom here and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Michelle, did you get surprised by that doxology? Way to go. Remember that you know that. We're going to start out today in Matthew 28. Now, we've been through a week that by normal human church tradition is called the Easter week. We know that the word Easter in this entire line of argument doesn't really exist within Scripture. It's been imposed by the culture. But it is one of those things that kind of like Christmas and other things we go along with because it's beautiful. And so if the entire world, even those that don't believe in Christ, want to embrace this time as a time to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, frankly, more power to them, right? <laughs> and yet at the same time, there was a Passover, and there was an entrance of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And they did wave the palm fronds and say, Hallelujah, Hosanna to God in the highest, because the Messiah has come. And he did live through that week and teach most his most intense teachings during that week, leading up to a point at the end where he had officially offended every human being on earth. And so the same people that were saying, Hosanna in the highest at the beginning of the week, were the same ones saying, give us Barabbas at the end of the week. I want us all to remember that typically they represent us all. If you think to yourself, well, I would never have denied him, well, Peter kind of thought the same thing, didn't he? And yet, the upside and the downside came. Like a lot of you came to the uh, Good Friday service, where I had the unfortunate blessing of being able to tell you it was going to be a terrible service. Because you can't have a happy ending to the crucifixion. But you can have a great ending to the resurrection, right? So at the end of Good Friday, Jesus only dies, and you're left on hold for a couple of days while he, his body, was in the heart of the earth. And then we get to here. Chapter 28, 
Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see me there. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would open our eyes today so that we might see Jesus. That we might have our hearts opened in such a way as that we're willing to receive your word, Lord God, because it's hard for us, because we're weak and we're afraid and we doubt. But you build us up with strength and new eyes and new insight and the ability to hear and the ability to see and the ability to speak. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would give us this gift of being able to receive your word. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So when we get to here, one of the things that we notice, and I don't want you to miss, because it's a point the Bible is particularly making. Most of the time, the Bible's talking about the 12 disciples, and they're all guys. But there were no guys. The women that had been along with Jesus, the ones that weren't expected to be brave, that weren't expected to rush into the gap, that weren't expected to stand with him till the end, those are the ones that went to the tomb early in the morning. We hear in other places, it's because the guys were hiding in an upper room. They were hiding from ghosts and goblins and Romans and all kinds of things. Because Jesus had been telling them for three years, here's what's going to happen. They're going to take me, and they're going to crucify me, and on the third day, I will rise from the dead. And they heard it, and they heard it, and heard it. But once he was crucified, they vanished. This is the state of the American soul. It really is. From the very beginning, for 2,000 years, people have been in the suspended state of animation between belief and doubt, belief and doubt. Kind of a famous thing came out this week. Christianity Today, one of the editors put out a thing where he uh, uh, did a tweet. You know, people get in trouble for tweets sometimes. <laughs> and he put out one that said, well, you know, it's okay if we doubt because Jesus doubted and doubt is part of faith. But here's one of the things about that. The Bible actually says doubt is... Sin, doubt is part of the corruption left in us. We're never to build up doubt as a good thing or a cherished thing or a virtue as a prize. It might be that you've had doubt. It might be that all of us have had doubt, but the point of doubt is to get to faith. Doubt is never seen as a good thing in and of itself. So whereas the culture might build up the validity and the veracity of doubt and fear, we build up faith and hope and love. They're very different from each other. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we're going to spend some time, the fact that Christ rose from the dead was stated clearly. The significance of it is different from it. You have to remember that just somebody rising from the dead would not be unique to Christianity or especially helpful. If you just came out and heard, well, Jesus rose from the dead. Well, 
thanks. It's the deeper significance of it. It's the life. It's the death. And it's the resurrection together that make it have the significance that makes it have a meaning for me. I know that the culture at large is going through a scientific phase. You know, it's really been that way all through history. There have been ups and downs. Sometimes people are all about what they can see, touch, and taste, and sometimes people are all about the invisible. You know, 150 years ago, they were actually going through a time when spiritualism thrived and seances were everywhere and palm readers were on every corner. We tend to think that's today, but no, that was back then. It was a very spiritual age, but one in which true religion was only a faint memory. The churches have been rebuilding from that for almost 200 years. But spiritualism was the rage, the burning of candles, and talking to angels, and seeing ghosts everywhere, and the comeback of fairies and goblins and all of that. That was really a part of the culture that was huge at the time, and we still see the remnants of it in our culture today. So spiritualism, or mere belief in the supernatural, is common. Was it common in Jesus' day? One of the things the Apostle Paul had to deal with more than anything else was the competition between Jesus Christ as the unique, singular revelation of God, his identity, person, and work amidst a thousand other religions. Now, now, because of the effect of Christianity over the last couple hundred years, I mean, a thousand years, there really is a competition between five or six major religions and the other ones that we're kind of like, well, that's not even dignified to be a religion, right? We've got the good ones, we've worked it out, right? At the same time, the uniqueness of Christianity is still held out as one God who has revealed himself in one person. When we talk about the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead would not have been particularly amazing if not for the person and work of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> that God himself, in the person of his Son, came down from his heavenly existence in which he pre-existed before the coming of Jesus. That he built a body for himself that was fully God and fully man. There's this interesting way there in which the Son of God always existed. But Jesus has only existed for 2,000 years. You have to remember that the humanity was created. The deity was never created. And so he became fully God and fully man, and he lived a life just like yours and mine, not being more God than man or more man than God, but being fully God and fully man. So he walked in the dirt, he sweated, he had to go to the bathroom, he worked. I mean, did he ever get like the flu and stuff? I don't really know. If he could, he could heal it. So I mean, what does it matter? But at the same time, he got him a stool and he like got chicken pox and stuff, right? He had an intense relationship with his family, didn't he? There was that one time when his brothers and sisters and his mother, they came to get him. And it says in the scriptures, they thought he might have gone crazy. Because all of a sudden he's the Messiah and stuff. We always knew Jesus was a little weird. But now he's the Messiah and they came to get him. And that's where he says those famous lines. He says, my mother and my brothers are the ones who do the will of my father. Now we know that once he rose from the dead... All of them believed him, and James, his brother, his physical brother, becomes famous in Scripture, and also Jude is another one of his brothers, and so they all believed, but they had a time of doubt. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. This is the Apostle Paul teaching. Which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, 
if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So now he's going to tell them a retelling of the gospel that he already told them upon their conversion. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Before the resurrection, the thing of first importance is that he died for their sins. If he did not actually have the capacity, the authority, and the power to die for sin, the resurrection from the dead would be of little consequence. He had to die for you, to take upon the weight of all your sins, and to suffer the equivalent of those sins in the eyes of a just and righteous God in whom no sin can exist. You know, it's, it's a heavy idea. Because the gospel requires something of us. It requires a confession that we're wrong and he's right. Now, the gospel has fallen on hard times, but I would consider most churches to have a grip on it. If you go to a church where the gospel that they're giving you is if you are a good person and you do a lot of good works, God will like you. But if you do a lot of sins, he's not going to like you. That's not the one found in the Bible. That is exactly the gospel of the Sadducees and the Pharisees with whom Jesus had a very adversarial relationship. The gospel is not good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. The gospel is all of us commonly, equally deserve hell. And Christ comes and he dies for us so that if we believe in him, we might have everlasting life. You know, the primary focus of this church is a gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Why are people so disturbed by that gospel? Number one, it removes all human righteousness. Number two, you don't get to contribute anything to your salvation but your sin. Number three, they think it gives room for sin because you're saying that people are saved before they do a lot of good works. Well, I can't argue with the Bible for you. The Bible says that all of your good works are like a filthy rag. They're not impressive to God. It's kind of like our music. You know, when I was a kid, I played in a rock band. I tend to think God was not super impressed. <laughs> but as I got older, I joined choirs. <laughs> then he was... Do you really think our music ever gets to the place where God's listening to the quality of it and goes, wow, now, you're good. The heavenly choirs, you know, the only analogy it gives us in scripture is it sounds like the, the flowing of many rushing waters. Now think about that. How many of you have been to Niagara Falls or somewhere like that? I remember being to Niagara Falls. My mom's here. She took us when we were about 12 or 13. And you couldn't hear each other. You're standing right next to people. Wow, this is loud. What? It's loud. What? The rushing waters were overwhelming. It almost makes you dizzy because it's so loud. And the music of heaven is more like that than our chintzy little rock bands, right? And yet at the same time, when God looks at the heart, if you're worshiping the Lord with a heart full of hope and faith and love, that's what he sees, that's what he appreciates that's what he likes. In the same way, your good works are made good in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When he looks on you and he sees that you were in his son, he loves you as if you had never sinned. 
He looks on you with a perfection that you will never have in this life, and I'm sorry, you'll never have it in the next. When he looks on you, he sees you in the sublime perfection which is necessary for the unmerited, unrequited love of God for his son. So if Christ had not died for our sins, the resurrection would be of little consequence. But because he died for our sins, the resurrection has maximal consequence. In other words, we're in him now. We wear him. When his blood fell, you have to remember, it was a physical human body. And when his blood fell, it fell on the ground, in the dirt. And so the entire earth has been sanctified by the death of Jesus. Every person, every race, every tribe, every tongue, every people that believe in him have been washed by that blood, sanctified by it in the person and work of Christ so that we might participate in the resurrection of the dead ourselves. Now that's where the rubber hits the road. It's not just that Jesus rose from the dead, it's that he takes us along with him. He died our death so we can live his life. When he rose from the dead, it's a promise that I'm going to rise from the dead. You might think to yourself, well, wow, that's cocky. Chris thinks he's going to rise from the dead. I want us all to rise from the dead. When you get down, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a counseling situation, but most counseling situations funnel down to the things that people are afraid of or the things that they need. Some kind of a need for glory they have or some kind of a need for self-destruction. And when you get down to it, most of it tends to have to do with death. They're still afraid of death. It's coming. It's like a freight train. It won't stop. Every day they're getting a little older. Those of you that have gotten to my age are starting to notice that everything's starting to break. Nothing works quite as well. I can't bend. I can't stand up. I can't reach. I can't pull. I can't. You know, how often do you kids have to pick up my keys? Kids, <laughs> <laughs> get my keys. <laughs> We're breaking down. We see the train coming. Every single one of us will die to this world. And Christ frees us from the fear of death because until you're not afraid of death anymore, you're never really fully equipped to celebrate life. Until you're done with death, you can't really engage in life. Verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom were still alive, but some have fallen asleep. That means they died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Now notice that he mentions Peter there. He mentions Peter, and Peter is a paradigm of all of us. You've got this entire thing going through the Bible. You've got the Peter thing, and you've got the Judas thing, and they both betray Christ, but in different ways, one with repentance in his heart and a longing to serve God, the other fully embracing his betrayal of Christ. But, you know, Peter was the closest one to Jesus. If you can get down to the idea that Jesus had pals, Jesus was his pal. They used to hang around. Is that a great honor or what? You know, I'd be nervous hanging around with Jesus. I would, like, say stupid things and try to be smart and, or funny. <laughs> Make Jesus laugh. Yeah, it's, it's, like, embarrassing, right? But him and Jesus were close. And so when you see that, when you see Peter do something, it's kind of different, right? And yet there were times when Jesus took Peter directly to task. You remember the first time that Jesus finally told Peter, you know what? They're going to take me. They're going to put me on a cross. They're going to kill me. And Jesus said, you will never die as long as I'm around, Lord. I will protect you. 
And it's almost laughable, right? Peter's going to protect him. But, Pete, you know, Jesus says this nice thing to correct him, because Jesus is always gentle like the Reader's Digest Jesus. He says, get thee behind me, Satan, because you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. In other words, keeping me from my cross, from the death that I have to do to accomplish what I need to accomplish, that's Satan's plan. Didn't Satan take Jesus up on a high tower and offer him the world if he would only avoid the cross? In other words, you can have everything you came for. All you have to do is not go to the cross. Another time, you know, Peter tells Jesus, I will never deny you, Lord. Somebody else might deny you, but it'll never be me. Because you and me, were like this. And Jesus has to tell him, you're going to deny me three times before morning. And, Jesus, and, and Peter denies him three times before morning. He thought he never would. Don't you always think you never would? Peter, I, one of the reasons I love Peter is because he's such an obsessive, compulsive character, right? I mean, one of the first things that, you know, we all talk about, you know, doing our work and figuring ourselves out. We all look at ourselves when we were young and say, oh, I was that way then, but now I've got it all together, right? As if years just do that on their own. But everybody's got these things that they're driven toward, which might be healthy or unhealthy, and these things they think about continually and are concerned with that might be good or might be horrible. And it's like Peter is the paradigm of the guy that's driven to get in Jesus' way in just about every way possible. Did he doubt the resurrection? It doesn't actually say. But let's take a look at another account of the resurrection. Luke chapter 24. Now look at what happens at the end of this account. But on the first day of the week, early at dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. So he told them all the way back then that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning to the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were told these things to the apostles. But the words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. These were the closest. This was the clique. They walked around with him for three years. They saw him rise the dead, rise from the dead, raise the dead. They saw him walk on water. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths there by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. You know, Jesus was kind of tough on Peter because what he expected from him later. You remember this time when he comes to visit Peter after the resurrection from the dead and, and Peter has to be made right because he had denied the Lord three times. If you think there's any sin that you can't be forgiven of, use Peter as an example of some of the worst and best sinning ever. And Jesus has to ask him three times, Peter, do you love me? He says, you know I love you. 
No, Peter, you don't love me. Lord, you know I love you. And then he asked him a third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's exasperated. He says, Lord, you know I love you. And then he tells him what to do. Does anybody remember what he tells him to do if he loves Jesus? Feed my sheep. And my sheep aren't him. My sheep is you. There's a sum, a summing up that happens. In Matthew 28, from verse 16. This is the end of the first gospel of Jesus Christ, Matthew. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have 16 books by the Apostle Paul explaining what happened and why. You've got five books by John, the Apostle that Jesus loved. But when Mark sums up his gospel, he does it with this. He says, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. We understand that. If, it's cap if they're capable of it, we're capable of it. But we're encouraged not to doubt, but to believe. And believing is a supernatural act. And Jesus said to them, here's what he gave them. When he was able to sum up his entire ministry of what they were supposed to do with everything he had done for them and in them, he gets to this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Uh, how much authority was given to him? Yeah. So the next time you hear somebody say, Satan is the ruler of this world, read them this verse. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, the words New Age are not actually a bad thing. The New Age started 2,000 years ago. It's still going on today. It will continue until the end of the world when Christ returns and we are all raised with him, either to everlasting shame or to everlasting glory. But at this point, he teaches us just a couple of things, and one of them is to observe all the things that he taught you. Now, I know that some of you think there's some kind of a parallel, there's some kind of a contrast, there's a contrary nature between a salvation that's by grace alone through faith alone and obedience to the moral laws of God, but there is not. As shamefully and inadequately as we try to keep the moral laws, we still strive to do that because we're children of our Father. And frankly, kids are supposed to look like their parents. <laughs> so he actually tells us to be obedient as we go out, not because our obedience will save us, but because it will be the witness to the world that we have truly known him. What does he say is the key by which people will know that we are his disciples? By our love. Will our love save us? It will not. Will your obedience save you? It will not. That's not why you do it. You do it because your Heavenly Father is perfect, and He is perfect love, and if you are His children, you will be like Him, living a life of love. Inadequately, with ups and downs, with torturous roads and ordeals to go through, with rain and sleet and hail and tornadoes and viruses, it'll all be there. But at the same time, you will show your witness by your love for each other. Uh, you know, I remember this time when I was getting a Sunday school lesson when I was a kid. <laughs> And uh, the lady, 
uh, taught me, well, she was teaching the class, and she was like, well, you know, Jesus is like a spirit now. He just kind of like floats around wherever he's needed. And I didn't know a lot about the Bible, but I knew it wasn't that. And so I asked her, well, didn't Jesus rise from the dead bodily on the third day? She was like, yeah. And I was like, didn't he rise into heaven and he seated at the right hand of the Father? And she was like, oh. Now this is to say two things. Number one, your best teachers, not your worst, should be teaching Sunday school. Two, Jesus rose bodily from the dead. He's not a ghost. He's not a phantom. This is not a spiritual thing. Heaven is not a spiritual realm where we can just step between dimensions and you'd be in heaven. Heaven is a physical place in this universe like the earth is a physical place in this universe. Jesus rose from the dead bodily in the same body that he was born in 2,000 years ago to Mary and is seated right hand, at the right hand of the Father in heaven, even now interceding for every one of you. When you get there, you will see him face to face because he has a face. Because he's already risen from the dead bodily, you can take it on his authority that he can raise every one of us from the dead bodily in the same bodies we were born in on the last, on the last day. This is the promise. And this is the significance of the resurrection, not just that he was resurrected, but that all of our resurrections are tied in with him. So that the last thing we should fear is death, so that we don't have to fear life. And we can go out of these doors and we can preach a gospel and we can preach it in full confidence of the authority of God stated in Scripture that there is a resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, you have been so good to us to bless us, Lord God, with your good news. That you lived for us. You taught us. You suffered our death. And you have risen from the dead for us so that we might participate in your resurrection. The scriptures call you the first fruits, the firstborn from the dead. But the reason you're the firstborn is because you are not the lastborn from the dead. When you come for us, we will be ready, and you will not find us without faith. We thank you for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In your order of service. There are two more songs.
the benediction. Somebody came and asked me about the age of this song. We have to remember that most of this was written by St. Patrick 1,700 years ago. So that there's no music to it, and probably 100 or 500 years from now, there will continue to be new music written to it. It's a very old idea. And the rest of it is, of course, just singing scripture itself. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.
Sophia, I know you hear me. I know you There's hear me. There's mommy. There's mommy. I won't lie to you. Come on. I tried to grab Reed and Drew, and of course they ran away. I never, I'll never be killed. I mean, how are y'all doing this on Sunday? I'm exhausted. Yes. Take the kid.
That was not even close. Well, I thought it was, but you'd already played it. I thought you were going to do something new. Oh, I thought she was Which which key would you play for holy holy holy? So like when you start out like it's middle C. Holy holy holy. Which which one would you play? Like in the middle. Well, I wanted 